Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Fully Scored. Over the last 21 months we've been preparing these podcasts, we've recorded approximately 30 hours worth of interviews. The man, the myth and the legend, Don Jenkins, holds the Fully Scored record for claiming about 10% of those 30 hours. Well done, Don. In all seriousness, though, we do appreciate all the time our guests have given up to chat, and the vast quantities of knowledge, insight and faith that they've shared with us. If you've missed any of our previous 19 episodes, you can catch up with them at any time, wherever you get your podcasts from. More details can be found on our Facebook page. Anyway, that's enough reminiscing for now. As usual, we have a fine duo of guests joining us for today's episode. First of all, we're joined by legendary Hollywood film composer, Bruce Broughton. I'll be chatting to Bruce all about his film and TV music, also his music for Walt Disney World, and of course, all about his Salvation Army band compositions and upbringing in the church. For this episode's analysis, we welcome back friend of the podcast, William Himes. Bill is going to be unearthing the story and the message behind his much-loved masterpiece, To the Chief Musician. Also, stick around for a very special and unique band mastermind at home. But for now, enter, enter, enter into this interview with Bruce Broughton. Well, thank you ever so much, Bruce, for joining us on Fully Scored. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. How are you keeping? Very good. We're here on a warm Southern California day. Um, not quite summery, but not quite spring either. So doing very well. Thanks. Brilliant. Now, over the next uh, course of this interview, we're going to be learning a little bit about you and a bit about your music. Um, first of all, I'd like to jump back in time a little bit. So I believe you're coming to us from near L.A. today. Um, have you always been based in L.A. or were you born somewhere different in the country? No, I was born about six miles from where I'm sitting. Um, I was born in Los Angeles. Um, I was born into a Salvation Army family. My grandfather was, at the time, the divisional commander of Southern California. Uh, my parents decided to, be, to become officers. So I lived in the area until I was about five years old. Um, they went up to San Francisco for training. And after that, we were on the move as any Salvation Army kid whose parents or officers would be. So I lived up and down the West Coast. I think of myself really as being a West Coast guy. I finished high school in Honolulu, Hawaii. So we went really far West. And I came back to Los Angeles to go to school. And with the exception of two years where I got drafted and I was in the US Army, part of which I was in um, Italy, um, I spent the rest of the time here in Los Angeles. So I've been here basically since 1967, although I was born years before that. And where I live now is Pasadena. Pasadena, if you were to drive into it, you wouldn't know that you were leaving Los Angeles or entering Pasadena. But Pasadena is one of those few cities in Los Angeles, like Beverly Hills and Santa Monica, which are incorporated and find themselves surrounded by Los Angeles. So uh, we live very close to downtown where uh, all the good restaurants are and where the symphony is and where all the music is. And yet we have the benefit of being in a small town, which has its own personality and, and um, it's actually quite nice here. It's, it's really very, very pleasant. Nice place to be. Fantastic. Living the dream, as they say. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so growing up, 
in the Salvation Army like that? Uh, were you thrust a brass instrument in your hand at an early age and uh, sort of taught to learn in the YP band? Or Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Um, my family, of course, is very musical. My grandfather was the composer. And, and um, aside from him, um, I had an uncle who was a songwriter and an aunt who was a piano player. My dad and my mother both were you know, they both could play brass instruments and play the piano. And as a family, my, my brother was a terrific trombone player. He went on to do a lot of studio playing as well as writing. So the four of us were a family quartet uh, for brass. I did an arrangement one time for piano, eight hands. And we all sat at the piano and, and played an arrangement of country gardens. Uh, we could sing. So I mean, we were very musical. So it was kind of impossible to escape it. So when I was a boy, I started taking piano lessons. I had an interest in that. And around the same time, somebody, as you said, thrust a trumpet into my hand or a cornet into my hands and said, here, learn this. Um, I wasn't so keen on learning a cornet, to tell you the truth, but it was part of the part of the gig. And um, so I learned to play, play cornet. I played a brass instrument until I until I got out of the US Army. I, at that point, I was a, a French horn player. And I let everybody know that I used to play French horn badly. I was just a mediocre. I mean, I you know I could I could hold my own, and I even played in an orchestra for a while. But essentially, I was a pianist, and uh, the piano got me into composing. But the um, the brass, I, it was it, it was a really good thing to be able to learn to play an instrument other than the piano. Learning about breathing, a bit, particularly a horn, because a horn gets miserable parts, probably second only to the trombone. Um, you play a lot of long notes, a lot of glue. People don't really know what to do with it. And you know, if, if you're the poor guy who has to sit there and play these miserable parts, it gets boring. So as a composer, I became aware of that and I tried not to write boring parts, uh, even though, I mean, there are things you have to do in order to get your music across, but it was, um, all in all, it was a good way, to, good way to grow up. And as I became a composer, because I was still around the Salvation Army, particularly when I was young, we had good bands, particularly here in Los Angeles, so I could get things played and I could get things tried out. And that was, you know, that was really worthwhile. It was a good start. And uh, when did you first realize that you had a real gift for writing music? Was it a gradual realization or was there a sudden moment where you got a pen and paper and started writing? Maybe last Tuesday. Um, I never felt that I had a special gift. Um, to tell you the truth, I and I've only really thought about this in the last, actually the last couple of months, I never really had any ambition to be a composer. I never had any ambition to be a musician. Uh, when, I, when I was a boy, I wanted to be an animator. And when I went to the university, I really didn't know what to study, but I decided on music eventually, after trying out English and other things. I decided on music because it was familiar, and I figured if I stayed in music uh, by the end of my degree, I would have a good idea what I wanted to do with my life, which turned out not to be true. But I did end up with a composition degree. So I tried to figure out how I was going to make a living as a composer. I didn't want to be a teacher. And I struck on the idea of the movies because the movies had music that was emotional and made people feel things. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have music that would directly contact people. Um, so from the very beginning of my composing, I was always interested in, in an audience, making sure that an audience contacted the music or the music contacted the audience, and also that the players uh, would enjoy playing it. So those are the, the two things that I always had from the beginning. And I still keep that. Now, once I got into the movies, 
I did a lot of writing, particularly working on television. I was like, during the television season, I would work six, seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day, constantly writing, 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 churning this stuff out. And it, it's just like practicing, you know, you just get better and better and better and better and better. And um, here I am, still writing. You know, I don't do a lot of television anymore, but um, but I still write a lot of music. And a gift, I don't know. I mean, I think of it as being something that you work at. I mean, I obviously I had some aptitude for music, but I worked at it. And I tell this to my students and to other people, if you want to be a good composer, you just have to practice, write a lot of music. And if, you know, if you want to be a good cornet player or trombone player, same thing, you have to practice. I know a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast will know your Salvation Army music. So I just want to pick your brains on that uh, area of your music for a couple of minutes more. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about some more of your memories in the Salvation Army and perhaps how this time has influenced your music writing and particularly the pieces that you wrote for the Salvation Army? One of the things I liked about the Salvation Army music was, aside from the brass bands and, and all the skill that people like Eric Ball and others had, they had a kind of music that was almost like vaudeville. Um, I don't know, you, you don't call it vaudeville, you call it something else. Um, but you know, like uh, cabaret music almost. They, they had these little tunes, like the devil and me, we don't agree, glory, hallelujah. I hate him, he hates me, glory, hallelujah. Well, that's, that's a pretty stupid, simple little ditty tune, you know, but it's catchy. And I think if I hadn't had that background, along with all the hymns, and the folk songs and all the, the richness of melody that I had, that I picked up from the army, I think that my composition process would be very different. Um, being around him, I remember Vaughn Williams saying this, so after he edited the uh, Oxford uh, hymnal, he said it was years of, of working with the best and the worst tunes in, in music because hymns, I mean, some of them are not very interesting at all. Some of them are just kind of dull. But some of them are spectacular, you know, just spectacular tunes with spectacular harmonies that lead to a um, lead to a specific purpose. So I think I like that a lot. And in the Salvation Army music that, that I particularly liked, I like the ditties, like the, the, the Devil and Me or Nicely Saved. Nicely Saved is an old music hall. That's, that's what you call it, musical, like an old music hall kind of tune. Um, so I, this was actually pointed out to me by Ron Holtz. Um, I would actually pick those tunes to work on. Like uh, the first thing I had published in the festival series was um, The Good Old Way. Well, that's, that's not a ditty. That's a great tune. That's just a really great tune. And I came across it in a setting by Eric Ball in, in uh, one of the songster journals. So I thought, oh, that's a great tune. I'm gonna use that tune. So it makes me look good because I'm working with a great tune. It also gave me an appreciation of really fine melodic writing. And once I got into commercial music, I was around some guys who were, I mean, I was around, frankly, a lot of famous songwriters like Henry Mancini and Hal David and Burt Bacharach and guys like that and people who you wouldn't know, but you'd know the songs. And I, I just sort of stand in awe of these guys. So when, you know, if I'm writing a tune, I go back to my Salvation Army roots, but then I make the trip through all these other people who I've met along the way. Um, here's a tune I wrote. Because, because I could. Okay, that's from Tiny Tunes. That, you could, you could take that all the way back to my Salvation Army roots. That's the... Uh... Okay, 
it's the same, the same grandparents, you know, I mean, it's the same kind of a tune. So one began the other. Now, a tune like this. From a movie called Homeward Bound. That's, that I can also take back to the army. Not that I ever knew a tune like that, but the structure of the tune and the way that it works has this very strong hymn-like quality, which was used in a kid's film. It wasn't a hymn, but, uh, but it, it feels like a hymn and it has those kind of big reactions of you know, nature and wonder and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I would say that my Salvation Army roots, I think if anybody actually knew my army music and knew my commercial music to some degree, they would be able to plot a line all the way through it. Um, you know, you, you, you are what you come from. Are there any particular Salvationist composers that you would say sort of influenced you and still influence your music, maybe? Well, um, certainly Eric Ball. I remember I, I went and met him one time at his house and he was, and he was very, very kind to me. But I remember um, Ray Allen. Um, I remember as a personality who I liked a lot. Uh, I remember his music. Some of it was really pretty stunning. My brother was heavily influenced by the Eternal Quest. I remember Lord of the Sea, which I thought was a fabulous, fabulous piece. Still think it's a great piece. The, um, I think it's called the Swedish Festival March by Blomberg. That piece come, it runs through my head all the time. I don't know why. Um, it's just, it just has this kind of different quality. I don't know any piece quite like it. And, and with the big brass sounds, I mean, it just kind of goes, yeah, there are, I mean, there are pieces that come and go. I mean, some of my grandfather's music, some of the marches, I think of things like Carry On, or Roll Call or Flowing River or, or some of those things. I mean, he did, he had a funny way with melody. I mean, not really funny, actually, he, he had a good way with melody, but a very different way than the way that I write melody. And um, it's interesting sometimes to see how he came up with certain ideas or not so much how he came up with them, but it's interesting to see the ideas that he came up with. Um, so yeah, all these guys had an effect on me. I, I remember also some of the transcriptions had an effect on me. It was Coles who did um, um, the transcription of Tchaikovsky. And I remember we used to play this at the Congress Hall Band. You know, like I said, we had 40 or 45 guys. And when we played the opening of the, the fourth symphony, that dum, da -da -da -dum, bum, bum, I mean, that was, the walls would rattle, you know, the way we would play. So finally, after learning the, the brass version, the Coles version, I finally heard a symphony play it and the horns play it. And I thought, that's kind of, kind of puny. Now, you've received numerous awards and nominations for your music over the years, from Emmys to Grammys to Academy Awards and Oscars. And we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. But how did you first of all get involved in writing for the TV music scene in Hollywood? Obviously, with my background, I was as far away from Hollywood as one could possibly be. Uh, I said earlier, my grandfather was the divisional commander of Southern California, and he knew everybody in Los Angeles. Um, he had a friend who had been a producer of radio shows in the 30s and 40s. Um, so when I got out of college, I went to see him. He was the only guy I knew who had anything at all to do with show business. And radio in the 30s and the 40s was not the way into show business. You know, this was now in the 60s. Anyway, he was very nice to me. He gave me three names. And... Um, I called them all. Uh, one guy was a society band leader in, um, in LA. He was a well-known guy. I was not competent to do that, really. I, I didn't have a 
commercial background at all. I soon got one, but that was nice. Another guy was a um, was a guy who worked for the sound effects and sound recording, all that kind of stuff. And his advice was learn to play golf and then date a producer's daughter, you know, that'll get you. Uh, the third guy was a fellow who had worked for this, this man um, who was now managing the music department for CBS television in Hollywood. So I went to see him and we hit it off immediately. He, uh, he had studied piano and he was very, uh, he was an artist. He was a very good manager. He was a spectacular guy. He ended up being the equivalent of my mentor, not musically, but in terms of everything else. And uh, at the time, there was nothing for me. But a couple of months later, he called me up and he said, uh, we have a job opening for an assistant in our department. Do you want to try out for it? So I said, yeah, sure. You know, so I did, and I got the job. So I spent 10 years working at CBS television in the music department as an assistant music supervisor, which meant I did everything from carry the records from one room to another to uh, actually working on TV shows. Um, the job was to use the music that we had recorded for the series and then when we didn't have a composer to use that music in the library and track it they would track it into the new show so i spent a lot of time working on shows like gunsmoke and hawaii 50 and wild wild west and a lot of shows that you wouldn't remember and even jerry goldsmith the, the film composer had started there about 10 years before me working in radio and then by the time i got there he was gone and already famous so that was my beginning, but it came through that one contact that my grandfather had, uh, the guy, the radio producer. So that was it. And once I got to, to CBS, um, because I was the assistant, I was involved in everything. So I was always in the music library looking at scores, um, looking over composer's shoulders, going to recordings. I learned how to write arrangements. I learned how to do things, you know, because we had great guys like like uh, Henry Mancini and Lalo Schifrin and people like this, you know, Michelle Legrand, they would come and they would do their arrangements. And I'd look at their scores, you know, and I would go listen to them. So it was, you know, it was quite a university. After I was finished with the university, I went to the real university. And then I became manager of the department. I didn't like that too much because I'm not a great business person. Um, and I left it and became a freelance composer. And then that was on my way after that. Brilliant stuff. And uh, some of the TV series you've written for uh, include Jag, Quincy, Hawaii Five-O, Dallas, Buck Rogers, Tiny Toon Adventures, Dinosaurs, and many, many more. How does the process of working and writing for TV series work? Um, it's a little bit different now than it was when I began. Uh, just, just for the record, I'm 76, okay? So when I began, I was 22, I think. Uh, so I've been doing this for over 50 years. When I first began, we worked in film. We worked on film. Film, I haven't seen a piece of film in 10 years, I don't know. Film was that thing, you know, it, was, it used to be on sort of like this plastic stuff and it had holes in it, sprocket holes that would pull it down through the projector and whatnot. So everything was done on film. Even our recording was done on film. So we would record to a piece of film that had magnetic stripe down, a stripe down the middle of it which was an improvement over the old optical method, you know, which was the old fashioned way. And we used to record monorally. Well, a few years later, it became stereo. You could actually record left and right. And then it became multi-channel. So we had four track and then this piece of film would be entirely covered with emulsion. That would be all the tracks. And then of course it went on from there. We went into tape and, and multi-track recording, all that kind of stuff. So everything developed and developed and developed. 
when we first originally saw the shows, if we to watch a, an episode of like uh, Hawaii Five O or something like that, we would add, we actually in, in the um, building that we had had a little projection room on our floor, and we would go into the projection room. It had about twelve seats, and um, they would run the show. So we would see the show just once, all the way through, no music, obviously, just with the dialogue and whatever sound effects they'd happen to record. And then uh, we'd look at it once, and then the second time we would look at it with the uh, with the producer, and we would decide where all the music spots were going to go. That's called a spotting session because you're looking for music spots. And um, there was a music editor who would write all this information down. Music begins when the door opens and the girl says hi there. And the music ends uh, when uh, the girl stomps out of the room saying, I hope I'll never see you again or something like that. And then the music editor would take the film and we go to, to his, it was practically always a his, practically always men, later it was women, uh, would go to his room, put the film up, and then he would make immaculate descriptions of all these scenes, beginning with hello there, ending with I hope I never see you again. So you would get sheets of paper thicker than, actually thicker than, uh, than a script that would have all these descriptions of the scene with everything in it. I mean, every movement, every gesture, every line, the beginning of a, a line, the end of a line, all the cuts, all the dissolves, when the dissolves began, when they had, you know, everything right there on the scene. And you would write the music from memory. I mean, from the memory of the scene, given these, um, uh, these sheets to help you along. Okay, now it's very different. Now it's all digital. So what they will do is they will send you a digital file there are no music editors to help you time all this stuff down. You figure out your own timings now, and there's a lot of software that will help you. And um, and you start writing. You know, I mean, you go through the same spotting session with the director or the producer, but you may not be in the same room. You may not even be in the same country. You know, I mean, you can do all this kind of stuff digitally, just like we're doing this. And um, and you begin writing now. When I was when I was a beginner, and if you see pictures from this time, if you see pictures of guys like. Well, like Henry Mancini and, and John Green and people like that, they all have one of these, the stopwatch. I still use mine. But now, of course, we have computer programs because you write to time. The idea is to make the music sound as though that was the way it just happened and that it just sort of magically fits the picture. But in fact, using this thing, you time all your phrases. So when you're working on a, on a TV or a, or a motion picture, you literally know, and I mean this literally, not, this is not hyperbole. You literally know the length of all your notes and all your phrases. Because if, if they're too long or if they're too short, they're not gonna match the cues. So you write your music in time with what's going on in the music, but you write it at a tempo that sounds most natural for what it is you're trying to write. The other thing that's different is that all film music, all audiovisual music, whether it's television or movies or video games or, or commercials, whatever it is, um, it's all accompaniment. The main voice is the thing you're looking at on the screen, either on the big screen or on the screen in your home or on your, you know, on your iPhone. Um, so it's not, it's not everything. If you go listen to a Beethoven symphony, that's everything. There is no there's no picture, there's no horse riding across the plains, no good guys, no bad guys. It's the whole thing. With film music, it's not. It's maybe 80% of the whole thing, or maybe it's 60%, or it's 20%, or maybe even 5%. Maybe the music is just there to just make things a little eerie, 
or to be a little more sinister or something like that. Or maybe it's there to, to help you uh, with a joke that didn't quite play in a comedy. So the music, you know, in which case then you have to be aware of timing and all that kind of stuff. But the thing you have to always be aware of is that main voice that you're working on. So it's, again, it's a very different kind of music, um, which is often confused even by the people who, who work in it. And it's a kind of a different skill, but the techniques are similar. So I gained a lot of technique uh, working on um, TV shows and, and movies and have been able to apply that to my concert work too. A, a guy who was very big on technique for me was Emil Soderstrom because I spent a lot of time studying with him when I was a kid. Um, and that was one of the things that he talked about a lot, like technique, technique, technique. Brilliant. That's absolutely fascinating to hear how that process works. And of course, as well as all that TV music, you've also written a lot of music for film, uh, including Silverado, Young Sherlock Holmes, Alone Yet Not Alone, Miracle on 34th Street, Bambi 2, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, The Rescuers Down Under. And I could go on for hours more and people can look on your website to find out more if they're interested. And does the process uh, when you're writing the music differ that much from writing music for TV in terms of the way uh, you use motivic development or is it, do you approach it in a very similar way? Well, um, there are a couple of changes which are not huge things. Uh, for one thing, if, if it's a motion picture and not being seen at home, <coughs> if you're actually sitting in a theater watching it, <coughs> the screen is huge. So you get to see everything. Um, at home, the screen is smaller. If, if you're working on an actual television, if those exist anymore, um, you know, the screens are kind of small or they're, you know, a little bit bigger, but the image is a lot smaller. So you can point things out a little bit more with music than you need to on a, on a big film. Um, there's also the, the thing that when you're sitting in a theater watching a movie, for the most part, everybody's there just watching the film. Whereas at home, people are getting up and they're walking around, they're going to the kitchen, they're going to the bathroom, they're doing all this kind of stuff. Now with streaming, you can stop and start. But if you're just watching one of the regular programs like on BBC or, or something like that, um, you may miss a lot, you know? So there's um, the way people use music on TV, I think is slightly different than the way they use it in, in motion pictures. Also the production time is different. In motion pictures, they'll take a lot more time producing the sound, uh, which includes the music, which, I say includes the music. Uh, the music has a lot of competition in films. It has a lot of, it, first of all, it has the dialogue, which you can never um, play over. You can never be on top of, never louder than. And then it has all this, what used to be called sound effects, but is now sound design. And sound design becomes very often something like music. And music these days, uh, particularly with guys like Johan Johansson, becomes more and more like sound design. And it is sound design, but it's a kind of music, you know, that, so they, they're sort of interchangeable. So the place for music and how music is used and the type of music it is, is very different from when I began 50 some years ago. Um, you know, I actually, I've, I've thought recently, um, I was so enamored by a score I saw of Johan Johansson that I thought, you know, if I were a young guy, like in my twenties and just getting out of college, if I had any brains, I'd go into sound design. I would, I would see if I could increase my vocabulary musically so that I could use all those techniques as well and do the same kinds of things we do now with scales and chords and all that. You know, it, it's a really interesting area. My next question 
How do you keep your music true to your own artistic vision whilst also working with directors and producers who may also have their own vision for how <laughs> things should sound? You do it their way. Um, composers are a whiny bunch, you know. You don't love me, you don't understand my music. My agent doesn't understand my music. The director didn't understand my music. And, uh, yeah, who cares? Um, on a recording session for a movie or a TV job, you will never, ever, 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 ever hear the director say to you or congratulate you about something you did really well with the music, meaning that you did that phrase really well, that the balance between the horns and the trombones was really delicate. You know, the, the way you use the alto flute with the bassoon, you'll never hear that, never. When the piece is finished in its final performance, nobody will applaud. What you're gonna hear is, and what you wanna hear is the director will say, great, that works, let's go on. Meaning that all the players there who are all sight reading, all turn their music, you know, like this. They all turn their music around and they go to the next piece. Then you go through the whole process again. What you occasionally hear and what you don't wanna hear, but, it, but it, occasionally you do, I mean, on occasion, you'll hear the director say, I don't like this, I don't like this. Usually what it is is, can you make it more romantic? Can you make it scarier? Can you make it more this? Or can you make it less this? Or that's not very funny and, and that kind of stuff. So you work out problems. But you know, sometimes, sometimes the director will just say to you, I don't like this. This isn't going in my movie. You better fix it. So you fix it. You know, you stand there and you work with the musicians and you change these notes and you change, or you go home and you rewrite it. I mean, I've done all that kind of stuff. Um, until the director says, great, I like it, you know, that's fine. Or they, or they get rid of you and hire somebody else, which is more often their solution because they don't have enough imagination to realize that you can write different ways. Um, but basically it's not your film, it's their film. And the only reason you're there is to help tell their story. You're not there to show your, your knowledge of, of extended chords uh, or of uh, compositional technique or orchestration or, melodic ability. I mean, you're not there for any of that stuff. You're there to make the audience cry during the sad parts, to make them laugh during the happy parts, and to make them scared during those parts. That, and the film, of course, is doing that anyway. So all you're doing, you're enhancing, you're modifying the, the story. Otherwise, there would be no music in movies. And if you've ever seen a movie that had music in it, if you've ever seen it without the music, you would know why the music was there. Because these movies are really tedious. They're really long. They're really dull. Without the music, it's just two guys talking to each other, you know. Which, of course, in our case, is very interesting. But you, but you know, you know what I mean. Maybe we need an underscore for this or something. Yeah. <laughs> now, another aspect of your composition that I'm quite interested in talking to you about today is your writing for Disney theme parks. Anyone that's visited a Disney theme park around the world is likely to have heard your music, perhaps without even realising. You've written the music for Spaceship Earth, Soaring Around the World, Ellen's Energy Adventure, Cinemagique, Honey, I Shank the Audience, plus many more. Again, where did your affiliation with working with Disney in that way first begin? Um, it began initially with a thing called The Making of Me, which was a film about um, human re reproduction. It was very, very vanilla and, and light and all that kind of stuff, but it was that. And I think I got that job because I had done this movie called um, The Boy Who Could Fly that the head of the studio liked a lot. So I think my name came up um, when that came. And then there was a long lull. I, I took that as a one-off. And then I got another call. This happened to me two or three times. I, I've talked a couple of times about Jerry Goldsmith. 
he was my favorite guy. I mean, I, 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 I thought he was spectacular. So um, to be able to meet him and talk to him and, you know, this stuff like that, that was a really big deal to me. Um, but I, occasionally he would get busy and he couldn't do a job. So I would follow him. Like I, I did Tombstone, Jerry recommended me. I did Baby's Day Out, Jerry recommended me. Um, it's funny, I, I, couldn't do, I couldn't do Home Alone. So John Williams did Home Alone. So I mean, not that I recommended him, but you know, we, we sort of follow each other. But the first Disney thing after the making of me was a, a big circle vision thing called the Visionarium. And it was a really, it ended up being a really popular show at Disney France. But I got this because Jerry was supposed to do it and then he got tied up with something. So I got it. Well, I was, boy, I was, I was in heaven because here I am working with Disney. And you know, the guys that I worked with then, I still, I still either work with them or we still socialize. It was just a great team of people. Animation and, and those shows, the theme park shows, I found to be the best jobs to work on for me because they were always very well planned. They were always very well, very, very creative. They were usually for Disney too, not always, but usually for Disney. Elton's Energy Venture, like a lot of them, is a, uh, it's a ride, but there's a pre-show. So while the show is just wrapping itself up behind the door, as you sit and you look at the pre-show, which is a whole other show, and you write music for that too. So there's this part one you're writing music on. Then the doors open. So as the doors are opening, what you don't see is that the people, the former audience is leaving. Disney knows this. I mean, obviously. You know. So the timing of the opening of the doors and the timing of the closing of the doors on the other end of the room are all figured out. So they know in this particular thing, um, they had six what they called people movers, these big kind of moving uh, machines that would hold 100 people each. So it would hold 600 people. And it's a huge, huge cavernous room that they built for it. So they know how long it takes to put, to safely load 600 people onto these people movers. So the music goes on and on and on and on. And then the lights dim. I knew exactly when the lights were gonna dim because it was in my notes. I knew when the doors closed. I knew when the, when the dialogue comes up, when the picture started. I mean, all this kind of stuff was all time. It was all, all figured out. So in all these shows, you have to write a piece called fill and spill. The fill is when people come into the room, you fill the room. And then the spill is when people leave the room, you spill them out of the room. So sometimes the fill and spill is the same piece, but it's on a loop. Soaring Around the World was particularly spectacular because again, talking about Jerry Goldsmith, this guy I admired, uh, Jerry had done the first one, which was called Soaring Around California, which was, it was a fabulous show. And people love the score, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, they take you up 50 feet up in the air and you look at the screen that has no edges. It looks like you're actually up in the air. Um, so Jerry, unfortunately, passed away, and they asked me if I would do the sequel, um, which was great for me. One, because it's a great show, and two, because I was using Jerry's material. So it's an original score, but the themes are, are primarily his. Um, so it's a little bit of him, a little bit of me, you know, and this great show. I would say to people who had never been to a theme park, if theme parks are too childish for you, the one thing you want to see is soaring around the world. And, and for a ride like Spaceship Earth, where the audience and your listeners are moving throughout different scenes, musically, how do you get that really smooth transition um, that you might have to do differently from writing in film, well, for example? That, that's a good question, because when I looked at the show, they let me know that they had a problem or that I had a problem. So we've got a problem and you're going to have to solve it. Um, 
Spaceship Earth is a basically a carriage ride, right? There's a little carriage that takes you around. I had seen it, and the thing I noticed was that the um, the little tram occasionally would stop, which I took to be a malfunction. It wasn't a malfunction. What it is is a safety thing. They will stop the tram to make sure that everybody is seated safely. So the show starts, it goes up this long ramp, and then you go through the history of the world. You start in primitive times, and then you go into Phoenicia and Egypt and Rome, and I think there were two or three of them. And they said, um, as you're, these are all in like rooms with animatronic figures in them. And they said, um, each room will have its own music. The only thing is occasionally the tram stops and you might find yourself between two rooms. And we don't know how you're gonna solve that. Meaning you're gonna have two different kinds of music. And I thought, you guys have already solved this. I know how to do this perfectly. It's a small world, does the same thing. And it's a small world, it's this, ride around a big pond and you go um, by all these little kids dressed up in all these toys dressed up as kids in the um, uh, clothing of their natural country singing their language but it's the same tune at the same tempo in the same key so i said i'm gonna do the same thing so what i did is i basically wrote a chicane which is a um, harmonic variation a harmonic instead of a theme you have a harmony and you write variations on this Harmony. So for the Phoenicia, Rome, and Egypt, they all have the same harmonic basis. They all run at the same rhythm, and the music can be played one on top of the other. When I worked it all out, I think I had four or five of these pieces, and I put them on my synthesizer, and I played them all at once to see if anything stuck out. You know, it all worked out pretty well. The thing that I didn't plan for, I didn't realize this until I saw the show and it was all over, I didn't plan for the noise of the tram, because the, the tram itself is going and it wiped out a lot of very soft music. For, so next time, if I ever did a show like that, I would make it a little bit louder, you know. But there are a lot of shows, and if you actually uh, wrote on Spaceship Earth and were aware of this, there are four or five groups of music that all can be played on top of each other in very different styles, you know. So um, fun job. I mean, I never had, never got a chance to do that before or since, you know. Great stuff. Now, every guest that we have on Fully Scored, I like to finish off the interviews with a few quirky quickfire questions. Some are <laughs> a bit more normal, and uh, some of them, I feel as if it's my job, someone like yourself that's been interviewed many, many times, to find you at least one question that you've never been asked before in your life. So strap yourself in. These are the quirky quickfire questions. What's your favourite Salvation Army brass band piece? Gosh, I don't know. Maybe... Um... Maybe Lord of the Sea. Have you got a favorite symphony? Maybe the um, maybe the Rachmaninoff Third. I'd probably pick that over the second. Oh, also, no, actually, maybe more than that. Um, Shostakovich, Bobby R, number ten. That one, that one is a killer. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I'd like you to imagine you're in a dream restaurant and you could be served any food that you wanted if you ordered it. What would you start a main and dessert be? I'm really fond of carrot cake. Okay, so dessert, yeah, I'm really fond of carrot cake. It's, it's one of those things, good or bad, I'll take it. Yeah. Fantastic. And if you're cooking, what's your signature dish? I'm good at making salads. I'm really good at making interesting concoctions of this and that. And I find that about half the things we eat that is interesting at all, including like just about every pasta dish you ever thought of, uh, is basically a salad. So, um, 
Yeah, I'm a good, I'm a really good salad. Come to my house for a salad. Not all at once, but you know. <laughs> if you could click your fingers and transport to anywhere in the world, where would you go first? Probably Berlin. I really like Berlin and I haven't been there for a few years. Uh, have you got a favorite sport? Favorite sport? Uh, watching TV. Um, no, I, I don't. I'm not a sports guy. I couldn't tell you. I, I know that the Lakers have something to do with basketball. And I know that uh, Manchester has something to do with soccer. And um, that's about all I know. Um, if zoos operated like supermarkets, what animal would you purchase? Hmm. Well, one that was still fresh. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, I always like to finish with a question that's so bizarre that it's almost unanswerable. So here goes. Which US president do you think would make the best yoga instructor? Calvin Coolidge. He was really dull. Um, uh, at least I thought he was dull. And not that I was around for him. No, I was probably, yeah, probably Calvin Coolidge. I mean, if you're just talking about being able to stay in a pose for a long time. You know, there's a great story about him being at a dinner with somebody and, and the lady sitting next to him said, Mr. President, I bet $10 that I could make you laugh. And he looked at her and he said, you lose. So that sounds like a yoga instructor to me. <laughs> great stuff. Well, thank you ever so much, Bruce. It's been really, really great talking to you today. And in a later episode, we'll hear you uh, doing an analysis of Covenant. Well, Matthew, you do a great job. You're very, you're, you're a really good MC at this stuff. So I thank you for your questions and being prepared really well. Thanks, Bruce. Fascinating stuff indeed. If you'd like to hear more from Bruce, you can like and follow our Facebook page where we'll be releasing some more snippets from that interview. But for now... Enter Bilheims with your music's analysis. Well, thank you, uh, Bill, ever so much for joining us today. It's uh, fantastic to see and hear you. How are you keeping? I'm keeping very well. Uh, the Lord has blessed me with good health, uh, me and my wife. And uh, we've, uh, we've been hunkering down like most people in this world, but uh, uh, safely within a bubble and still active in our core. Brilliant, that's great to hear. So in today's episode, we're gonna be doing an analysis of one of your pieces to the chief musician. Um, I guess the first question I'd like to ask you uh, is what was the inspiration uh, behind writing this? My dear friend and mentor, Commissioner Richard E. Holtz was our territorial commander for a very short while. I think it was like maybe two years at the most. And it was his last appointment before retirement. So the chief secretary calls me like he's in the CIA. He's calling me like that. He says, Himes, the boss is retiring. I want you to write a piece, but it's got to be a secret. You know, and so I, he says, I'll, I'll find out what his three favorite songs are. So I'm, I'm at music camp <clears throat> uh, in the summertime up in Minnesota. And I get this call. He goes, OK, Himes, here are the three tunes. Uh, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, Kumranda. Uh, uh, I bring thee all in Boston. Click. That's it. You know, so now I got these three tunes. And it's all going to be a deep, dark secret. So those are the things I know. Those are the influences. Then and two other things were happening in my life at that time. 
the New English Bible had come out a couple of years before, and um, and it was really lauded for its exceptional uh, translation, especially of the of the poetry of the Bible, the Psalms and things like that. So I had gotten I'd gotten that Bible, and I did what, what I don't recommend people do. I started at Genesis and just read straight through to Revelation. Uh, the Bible's not sequential in that way, of course. So, you know, you're taking each book as it comes, but I still, that, that, was, that was how I was getting through it. And about that time, I was really into the Psalms uh, when this assignment came. So there's, a, there's an influence, you know, and then I think of Holtz and I think, what is he? He's the chief musician. You know, he's the guy that has done so much to promote musical development, not only in the USA Eastern Territory, but the, the world, you know. And so I thought of him as the chief musician. So the Psalms became a basis. Then another thing happened was um, long after uh, the death of John Kennedy, they, they had many memorials. And one of them was um, uh, like a center for the performing arts in Washington, DC. And they were doing a big dedication. And they asked none other than Leonard Bernstein to write a work for this occasion. And he wrote a piece called Mass. And Mass was such a highly interactive piece. It, it had an orchestra, it had a choir, it had a children's choir, it even had a brass band that marched down at one point, not necessarily in the British style, but you know, just a sort of a rowdy bunch that came across the stage at some point. And, um, and I was struck by when I heard that performance, um, just how interactive it was with so many different textures and so then my mind started applying that thought, how could I write a piece that could be more interactive, more than just brass and percussion sounds, but other sounds as well, the spoken voice, the singing voice, and yet have it economical enough that you didn't need to, it didn't have to be a Royal Albert Hall thing where you had a Voices of a Thousand and the International Staff Band. It could be just a band itself and self-contained within, within that, with some strategic thinking, you could actually have the band do more than just play. And so those were influences that I chose. Those were choices that I chose to take. Now, uh, I had these three tunes. Um, so, but when you, when you think of the Psalms, um, you know, they're, they're just so, they, they were sung when they were first heard, of course but to take various texts. So I uh, somehow I happened on um, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. That became uh, the introit. Now, here's a funny thing. And so the chief secretary said to me, the first tune, guide me out though, great Jehovah, Kumranda. So I start working away on the first movement and I'm, I'm basing even the opening on the tune. And I worked on it for a day or two, and it was like maybe three, four o'clock in the morning where I finished this first movement. And um, as I do, I thought, okay, I'm just going to go to the tune book now to make sure that I've gotten every interval correct, because sometimes we sing songs a certain way, but it's not really how the person wrote them. I looked, and I had the wrong tune. I, I didn't have Kumranda. Da, 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 I had bread of heaven. Da, 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 da. And that was my opening.
the whole piece is based on this motif. And I remember saying out loud to myself as I looked at the score and looked at the tune book, I said, well, Holtz, you got a new favorite tune because there's no way I'm changing this. <laughs> so that part was really quite by accident, um, but I, I just landed on the wrong tune, but the, the motif became you know, the anchor for the whole piece. Let's dip into the score now uh, for To the Chief Musician. Um, and listeners at home, as usual, can find the score and follow along with it on the Salvation Army Music Index if they'd like to. So the first movement here, the introit that you talked about, uh, we start off with this antiphonal fanfare of the cornets and, and the trombones, the real symphonic instruments of the band. Could you talk us through uh, this introduction? Well, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, the opening uh, framework is uh, Guide Me Out, Thou Great Jehovah, Bread of Heaven. Ba, da, da, da. And then it's kind of an abstraction but uh, that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's all motivic from that. And then it, it shifts into a compound meter um, because I'm, I'm looking now at the rhythm of the text uh, because I want this Psalm 100 to come through in a, in a naturally rhythmic way. I don't want it to sound, you know, um, contrived or forced. So when you hear... It's just kind of a natural cadence and into his courts and into his courts. And it just goes back and forth. Uh, that compound meter seemed to uh, suit that. And uh, so that's that's basically what happens. So you have the just an opening to get their attention. And then it goes right into scripture. And then it comes back to that framework motif of guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And then um, I will say there's a little uh, a fanfare that comes through. Um, and this is from what I call my blurb book. A blurb is just a fragment of an idea. And this is an idea I got when I was in music school. Uh, if, you, if you had a thought on something, you just wrote it down. It might be three or four bars, and it was a blurb. And uh, I had this whole folder full of blurbs from over the years. And one of them was the... And uh, so I was looking through these blurbs to just see, is there anything there I could use? And I happened on that and I go, ah, now is the time for this. I bet that blurb was 10 years old. So then after that, you've set up those three things. You've got the tune, you got the scripture, you got the motif. Um, it pretty well does itself, you know, and it's very dance-like uh, when it says enter into his courts with praise. And that's kind of what I envision here. Just uh, a very, we're coming in to worship the Lord on a Sunday. And, and isn't it great to see everybody? And here we are, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and then uh, after all of that fanfare and procession, then we get to the tune, uh, Guide Me out, Thou Great Jehovah. I, I don't like uh, disguising a tune uh, so that um, people are left to wonder what what was that. Uh, I think our 
are, what does it say? Make, make the message clear and plain. Christ receiveth sinful men. You know, you want, you want the message to be clear and plain. So it does that. And uh, you don't want this to go on too long because it's going to be a sweet. So it doesn't have to be eternal to be immortal, as they say. So it's fairly brief and I hopefully leaves the audience wanting more. So on to the second movement. Um, <clears throat> obviously in a suite, you, uh, it's not an original idea to go fast, slow, fast. Uh, the contrasting movements, the uh, the uh, second movement is the cleansing the palate. You know, it, 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 if you think of it as a meal, you've had something and now you're gonna just uh, have a little bit of sherbet to uh, cleanse the palate before you go on. And uh, the second movement is just a beautiful thought and a tune by uh, Eva Booth. And what I remember too, was that when they were asking the Holtzes kind of in a sneaky way, what their tunes were. You see, the chief secretary couldn't give away why he wanted to know this. So he had to be very surreptitious about the thing. And so what he, he did first was he said to Commissioner Holtz, hey, I got to give a lecture at the University of Chicago on hymn tunes and hymn songs and gospel songs. He says, but Boss, tell me, what makes a good song? What makes a good hymn? And so Holtz in his very laborious uh, handwriting, very slowly, he's writing out a whole three, four pages of thoughts on what makes a song good. He says, oh, it should fit within an octave. It should be intuitive. He's doing it like a musicologist. And then the chief says, yeah, I see what you're saying there, boss, but... Uh, like, give me some examples. Like, what are tunes you like? And that was his sneaky way of getting it out, you see. And so then Holtz said, well, you know, I like this and this. But then his wife tapped him on the arm, Ruby Holtz, and said, oh, Richard, don't forget I bring the all. And he says, oh, yes, yes. So that became the second song. And it's just so lovely. And so, uh, therefore, it has kind of a, after all that rowdiness of the opening processional, complete contrast. Now it's very, very uh, sort of ethereal and, and mystical. And uh, the sounds are very simple, long lines, uh, but it, it allows, uh, it becomes an underscore, an underscore to the narration, which uh, often is neglected in a performance. Often you'll hear the band just go right into I Bring the All. But it, it is special when you hear the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I bring thee all my sins. None can forgive but thee. I bring thee all. And then it elides into the text of Booth that says, I bring thee all my sins. None can forgive but thee. I bring thee all. Those two thoughts really connect. And so the spoken word, I think, is just as important as uh, what happens when we play there. It just kind of sets it up using scripture in those lyrics. So then, without further ado, once that's established that, that mood, 
the tune comes in very simply. There's a little heartbeat that begins at the beginning of this piece, the bum, 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 and that's ever present through this piece. Um, there's only maybe three or four bars where that pulsating figure is not there. It's always, it's just like we're living life and it's, and it's, it's going on. It's very subtle, it's in the background, but what's prominent is uh, the, the song, I Bring the All. And then it uh, finishes as it began, just very quietly. Uh, interesting thing, Matthew, I know you're a trombone player. You'd be, you're interested in my theory on this is that I think the trombones are the closest thing to the human voice in a brass band. And so what I was striving to do here was as this uh, sun sets at the end, as it just kind of fades away, finally we just have a four voice chord and the trombones are holding that. And, uh, and then the band is instructed to just imitate that sound, to just hum it, not overtly where we hear people singing like, uh, you know, nothing like that, but just fitting into the, you're just humming along with the trombones and the trombones eventually fade away and the voices become the reverb. They're just, the sound continues. And it sort of leaves the audience wondering how did they do that? You know, the, the trombones are playing, now they're not playing, but I still hear the trombones. How is that? And that's why I chose them because I, I thought they came closest to, um, the, the, especially the male voice, which was prominent in bands certainly uh, at, at that time. Uh, but so it, it ends very, um, very mysteriously. And also I would say um, a little bit of um, impishness on my part, but Commissioner Holtz was all about color. He was always talking about the lights and idea of the bright sounds and the mellower sounds, those timbres. And, and they were either distinctly segregated or they were uh, uh, lovingly intermixed and in how you could come up with these spectrums of color. And I thought, Holtz, I'm going to give you a color you've never heard. And that was, that was uh, part of the motivation for the end of this movement. And again, it was interesting at the time of the performance because I think he actually looked quite baffled. It's like, what, what just happened there? How did, you know? So it's just something between me and him, but I think musically it works well. I should also say that when I finished this movement, I could relate to Eric Ball a little bit. And I know that sounds presumptuous. How could anyone relate to the master? But he was a great mentor in my life. And I remember uh, asking about something that he'd written at, at one point. And I said, you know, where did that come from? And he said, I don't honestly know. You know, I just, I, I, after it was all done, I looked at it and I thought, I, I did this. And, uh, that's kind of a feeling I have after the second movement, which isn't intricate, it's not complex, it's not highly technical music, but after it was all done and the next morning when I got up and I looked at the score, 
it was almost in third person. It was like, oh, I see what he did here. It, it was just, it was something like it was out of your hands. It was like, oh, I see. And it, and it sort of made perfect sense. It's, it's a weird kind of experience, but sometimes that happens. Really interesting to hear that. And it is a beautiful ethereal ending. Unfortunately, I'm not a trombonist. I haven't gone to the dark side. I'm still, still oh. on the call it. <laughs> oh, sorry about that, man. Right. I was trying to picture you in my mind where I saw you in the band. That's right. I haven't gone to the dark side yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, you look like a trombonist. I'll oh, say. dear. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us on to the third and final movement of the piece uh, entitled Worship, uh, Allegro con Fuoco. Uh, could you talk us through what happens here in this uh, very exciting and climactic movement? Well, again, uh, this is something, it's exciting music, but it's not difficult. My core band has played this. In fact, we, we did a whole holiness meeting around this piece one time. It's really quite playable. It's, it's not a test piece by any means. But um, I was actually sitting in a morning meeting as I'm thinking of this text, Worship the Lord, Worship the Lord and the Beauty of Holiness. And uh, I'm also thinking of the tune, Boston, which is actually the same contour of tune that the band is going to sing only in a minor key. It's, it's, it's all derivative of the tune Boston. I don't have many ideas, so I have to use a few ideas well, and that's what I'm doing here. The other thing that struck me was what is the meter of these words? How does it work? And, uh, and so I'm actually in the service during the sermon. I'm just kind of tapping on my knee this rhythm. Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I'm trying to put it in a, into a pulse. You know, it's not the way we would say it, but it's the way we would sing it. So then I thought, well, what does that look like? And then I realized this is what we would call a polyrhythm. It's a mixed meter um, where your quaver uh, is the unifying uh, meter to it. So it's actually three quavers followed by six quavers or th three full beats, if you will. So it's one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three, da, 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 da. So the time signature, and they, I'm surprised they allowed me to do this, but it's, it's the only piece I know in the Salvation Army that's actually published this way that has three, eight, plus three, four. And it's right at the beginning of the piece. It doesn't put the time sign at every bar line or anything like that. It's like, no, this is how it is. So if you're, you know, say the horns resting at letter A, you're going to count it uh, one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three. And it's a very simple instruction. I've never had a band fall apart over that. You just explain it once and they go, yeah, okay. Well, nowadays they write it as nine, eight time, which actually I don't care for because it's one bar, but it doesn't really show the pulse the way you'd want. You can get all the right number of beats in there, but probably boring you with theory now. But anyhow, I came up with three, eight plus three, four. And fortunately, uh, the powers that were, I think I have to thank, I think Lieutenant Colonel Ray Bowes for that. They published it that way. 
And it's the only band piece I know that, that has it that way, but it, 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 it's not to be clever or tricky. It's to fit the words and the text in a very natural way. After uh, the sort of the, the tune is introduced, then the band sings it. And uh, you'll note that the accompaniment is very sparse. Uh, again, this is the logistical part that I was talking about. How, how can I make this playable by a band, but with no other extra bodies in, in the group? And so less is more. So I just have the euphoniums playing in fifths with uh, per percussion uh, from time to time providing uh, some pulse as well. But they're just playing fifths while the, uh, while the, the singers are singing most of the time in two parts. And uh, again, you don't need to, to have a lot of voicings to the chords to make it work. They're singing in two parts all the way through this just about. Worship the Lord, worship the Lord, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord, worship the Lord, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So then that, that text is, uh, is fully realized uh, from the Psalms, given to the Lord, the glory due unto his name. And, uh, and then it returns to the, uh, to the uh, worship the Lord part. And then there's a little recitative uh, by just a solo tenor voice uh, who just sings very ad libitum, um, uh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And he's just left holding that note, which now leads us very uh, easily, quietly into Boston, when I survey the wondrous cross. Once we hit that, again, I've said this many times, I have few ideas, so I have to take the few that I have and use them uh, judiciously. So you're hearing the tune Boston, but over the top in an obligato between the cornet and the trombone, you're hearing that opening blurb. Just, just coming through, just to unify and to um, make the motion of the song go forward. And it's also, it becomes a portent. It becomes a prediction of what's gonna happen next because once that tune is finished, um, it goes back into the opening of the first movement, that sort of festive um, compound thing that's going on, that blurb that becomes uh, more active and, and just grows on itself. And finally, uh, it, it now uh, becomes a descant to Boston, uh, played in augmentation uh, at the end. And there I'm really thinking of those I Isaac Watts words, uh, were the whole realm of nature mine, that, just that magnificent uh, text. 
And uh, so, so it rolls on and then you've got to end sometime, obviously. So it goes uh, into a final key change just to say, okay, here's, here's the big finish. But it's really nothing more than the opening just brought back in a different kind of texture, different key. And then uh, the final phrase uh, you hear at the end while they're holding the long notes is just that opening phrase of when I survey the wondrous cross, when I survey. And, and that's basically it. Um, I think it's pretty economical, this piece, for being three movements. It's not too, too long, I don't think. But I think it also sits well with an audience. I think they get it too. to play and to listen to there and uh, you said about the tune Boston uh, and the theory that it came from good Gregorian chant yeah pairing it with the, the chants in this music and those open sort of fifth accompaniments in the euphonium yeah. was that an idea that you had or is that sort of a happy coincidence or? I would have to say that's a happy coincidence uh, you know I don't overthink things but sometimes you look back on it and you say you know you know I can see why I did that but I, I wouldn't want to go Freud on me there. I think that's, it just, it just happens that way. And, and, you know, again, uh, composition is a result of influences and choices. So I chose the Psalm text that I wanted. The tunes were chosen for me, but then how to exploit them. Those were my choices. How did, how did I see? And the other thing was to be reverent with the text. You know, sometimes I'll hear um, like a, a tune, an old song put in uh, in swing, you know, like there's a Christian jazz band uh, that a good friend of mine is in, and he sent me the recording, and it was great stuff. I mean, it's a full swing band, you know, saxes, trombones, trumpets, the whole bit, and they're playing uh, one tune. It's just really happy and upbeat, but I know the words, and the words at one point said, someone slipped and fell. Was that someone you? And it just sounded so cavalier. Someone slipped and fell. Was that someone you? It's like, no, something bad happened here. The words say that the tune should not be treated that way, you know. So I try to let um, those words and melodies inform my aesthetic choices as far as how I'm going to, uh, how I'm going to paint this picture, how I'm going to make it look. And I guess my final question uh, of this piece is, uh, is there a particular recording or performance that you've been a part of or heard that really stands out and means a lot to you? I was very happy with what we did with it, with the uh, Chicago staff band, but I know that other bands uh, have recorded it as well. And more recently, I was honored that Steve Cobb and the international staff band recorded it as part of um, that whole retrospective uh, they did on the music of, and there were these various decades, and that came out in the music of uh, the 1980s. And uh, I love those recordings. I treasure them. And equal uh, to that, I treasure the comments of Ray Stedman Allen, those informal interviews that Stephen would do at the end 
of the CD where he'd masterfully draw out uh, Ray Stedman Allen's uh, remarkable insights. And I just remember when he was talking about the chief musician, Ray just said, yeah, there's, there's nothing like it. And I thought, wow, this is from a guy who has written so many pieces that there's nothing else to compare it to. But uh, I, I was pleased that uh, the uniqueness of it is held up. Thanks, Bill. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we have a very special edition of Band Mastermind at home today. Before I explain that, though, it's time to announce last episode's Band Mastermind at Home winner. And it's a clean sweep this episode for John Ward, who correctly guessed the piece and composer first, and even claimed the extra bonus brownie points with identifying the correct album the music was from. Which, of course, was the Canadian staff band's recording, made in Canada. And also, well done to the many who guessed the piece correctly, which was indeed Thomas Rives' Redeeming Love. Well done, and thank you to all who let us know. Now, usually, we'd put our guests to the test, giving them 1 minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions correctly as possible. Today's twist is, it's your turn. We're opening up the floor to all of our listeners. It's your turn in the hot seat. The rules are as usual. You'll have the exact time it takes the ISB to play Jubilee, minus a few repeats so that it lasts 1 minute 30, to answer these questions. I'll go through the answers at the end so you can mark yourself and let us know your score. Now before we commence, I have been asked by our legal team, well, Simon Gash, our producer, to discourage people from competing whilst driving, skiing and fencing. We don't want any accidents on our hands. Anyway, fully scored listeners, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Then your time starts now. What is the note that the lone solo cornet commences the piece My Treasure by Wilfred Heaton on? What country was James Anderson, the composer, born in? Camp Mount Crags is situated in which USA territory? What number in the festival series is Eric Ball's The Kingdom Triumphant? Who wrote the piece published in the festival series Variations on Terra Beata? Which composer, now an officer serving in Canada, was once a member of the music editorial department in the UK? What is the title of the Eric Ball piece that is the same name as the second book of the Bible? Which long-term principal cornet player with the New York staff band, who served the band for 33 years, originated from Kingston-upon-Hull in England? Who is the current bandmaster of the Box Hill Corps in the Australian Territory? Who wrote the general series piece, Nothing Do I Bring? Which notable writer's funeral did the, the father of Salvation Army music, Richard Slater, attend as a young man? Colonel Bernard Adams was a staff bandmaster for 28 years, 
but what core songster brigade did he also lead during this time? Well, time's up I'm afraid. Here are the answers. The note that the lone solo cornet starts on in Wilfred Heaton's My Treasure is a top G. What country was composer James Anderson born in? It was Scotland. Glasgow, to be specific. Camp Mount Crags is situated in the USA Western Territory. The number in the festival series for the Kingdom Triumphant is 273. And the piece published in the festival series, Variations on Terra Beata, was written by James Kerno. The composer, now serving as an officer in Canada, who was once a member of the music editorial department in the UK, was Nicholas Samuel. The title piece of the Eric Ball piece that shares a name with the second book of the Bible is, of course, Exodus. The long-time serving principal cornet player with the New York Staff Band, who served with the band for 33 years and originated from Kingston-upon-Hull in England, was Gordon Ward. The current bandmaster of the Box Hill Corps in Australia is Ken Waterworth. The composer of the general series piece, Nothing Do I Bring, was William Broughton. Which notable writer's funeral did the father of Salvation Army music, Richard Slater, attend as a young man? It was Charles Dickens. And finally, Colonel Bernard Adams was a staff bandmaster for 28 years, and also during that time, he was a songster brigade leader at the Upper Norwood Corps. So... Let us know how many you got out of those 12. Send us a message on Facebook, tweet us, or even contact us on Instagram. Who's going to be this episode's Bandmastermind champion? Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in today's episode of Fully Scored. But do not fear, we'll be back next month with another duo of guests. Thank you so much to Bill and Bruce for giving up your time to chat with us and be part of today's episode. We really appreciate your insight, knowledge and music. Thank you also to our producer Simon Gash for sewing the snippets together seamlessly. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you're following us on all the social media stuff. And why not... Drop us a like or leave us a review. Or, better than that, share this podcast with someone that you know. We'll see you next time. Goodbye and God bless. Goodbye.